You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to tell you the story of the 602 Club. Some may call me a liar, but this story is true. And I'm so excited to be here with my good friend, Zachary Fruling, as we are going to be talking about Braveheart in the 602 Club. How are you doing, Zachary? I've been a little better, actually. I'm a little under the weather. I feel like eating a bowl of uh, Uncle Argyle's uh, really delicious looking stew from, from Braveheart. Yeah, that would uh, probably make all, everything better. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that probably cures all ales. Uh, but we're very excited to dive into this epic from 1995. And before we do that, of course, just a reminder, you can find us everywhere podcasts can be had. If you are listening and have not subscribed, please go ahead and do that. That way you'll get our episodes as soon as they drop. You can also interact with us and follow us, of course, on social media. We would love to interact with you there uh, and connect with us at the 602 Club on Twitter, at the 602 Club TFM on Instagram. The entire network is on Facebook at facebook.com slash trackfm. You can also find us online at trek.fm and you can go over to patreon and support the network means a lot to us for everybody that does that it means all of these shows can keep coming to you each and every week that's patreon.com slash trek fm where you can do that so go over there help us out but i mean this movie is one it's it's super long we have so much to talk about but it really is something epic and, you know, one of the things, Zach, that had attracted Mel Gibson in the first place to the script was that he felt like that it had been a while since Hollywood had released a film like this. Uh, and, you know, Hollywood had been known for epic films like Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments and something like Lawrence of Arabia. And so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit, but, you know, before we kind of dive into this, you know, this is... In the vein of those films, did you grow up watching those type of movies and, and, and those big historical epics, the big biblical epics? I mean, just epics in general that Hollywood was known for? I have to say, before we get started, Braveheart is one of my absolute favorite movies. It's in my top five list for sure. I've probably seen this film at least 30 times, maybe 50, maybe not more than 50 but no, when I, in 1995, I had never seen a movie like this. I had not seen The Ten Commandments. I had not seen Ben-Hur. I had not seen an epic film like this. And I had never seen anything on the scale of Braveheart when this came out. And it, and it really affected me. It was such a, uh, I, it almost became a lifestyle. I remember when I, when I started, uh, uh, when I first watched the movie, I was working at a, at a coffee shop and a bunch of us from the coffee shop that, that worked together all went to see Braveheart together. And it become this. It became this thing we did at the coffee shop. Was we started talking in a Scottish accent, and we dropped quotes from the movie, and we were buying bagpipe music. <laughs> I mean, we were really in Scottish mode for for a long time because of this uh, this movie. And uh, it's 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 stuck with me over the years. It's it never gets old. I can watch it again and again and again, and always get something out of it. I, but I'd never seen anything like it in 1995. I just didn't watch those big epics at that point. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Um, and of course, you know, I could crush you. Like a worm, uh, oh, probably the best yeah, line I mean, of the film. But Matt, there. you drop your rock. That's right. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's funny because I'm on the opposite side of that. You know, I had grown up watching, you know, Ben Hur and the Ten Commandments and all of these type of epic films that you know Mel Gibson was thinking about when he read this script and realized this just wasn't the type of film that Hollywood had been making for a long time. Uh, you know, the size and the scope of this movie. Uh, you know, the, the historical epicness of it, you know, uh, telling a story that's one that, you know, uh, there's so much fact and fiction going on with the story of William Wallace, because historically, there's not a ton that is known about him, especially his his life before mm-hmm. he comes on the scene. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's one of those things. It, it's like, you know, Robin Hood, where the 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 legend and the myth 
you know, transcend whether or not everything you see is true, right? Um, and yet, of course, this is based in in reality as well. But and in so, a way, does does it even matter? I mean, every every uh, country, every culture has its has its origin myths, right? And this is this is this is part of the Scottish uh, not origin myth, maybe, but it's it's a uh, it's a legend. It's uh, part true, part falsity. It, it's okay. We need we need our legends. We need our stories. We need our inspiration. Yeah, and I think the beauty of this movie is that you know they did a very good job of you know looking behind the scenes at all of the information that was available uh and then extrapolating off of that right uh and so and and you know that's what we do with any historical epic right we're we're filling in gaps that we don't know that aren't recorded in history books especially again with somebody like Wallace where uh, we don't have everything about them documented until they kind of come on the scene. And even then, you know, it's not as though we have a clear cut picture of all that he was. And so I think it's it's pretty amazing um, that 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 happens. But I think, like you said, you know, when it comes to film. The, the beauty of of when you do a film is that I don't know if anybody goes into it expecting that it has to be 100% accurate, right? We always know that we're coming into with the perspective of the filmmakers as well as trying to tell a good story. Years ago, I had read the novelization of Braveheart, who, which was written by someone also with the last name Wallace. And so the author of the novel was, of course, interested in William Wallace because they they share names. And I remember in the introduction to the novel, the author stating that, you know, he really had no idea what William Wallace whispered to his lover in the middle of the night, but this is the story that he imagined and that he found inspiring and it's the story he wanted to tell. And who, at that point, who cares if it's historically accurate? You know, it, uh, it's, a, it's a good story. Well, and I think too, you know, um, one of the things uh, when we kind of think about the epicness of this film and the scope, mm-hmm. the size of it. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was really interesting and, and, and this is, you know, like some of those movies from the nineties, you know, I, I think of this film, you know, of course think of like the, the way the matrix changes things mm-hmm. in, in 1999, but all throughout the nineties, there are movies like this that kind of stand out that actually then begin to set a template for what movies will look like in the future. And one of the things that I think Gibson rightly does with his directorial style here is that he wanted you to feel as though you were in the action. You were in the battle scenes that you weren't on the outside looking in, but you were on the inside looking out and that, and that you felt like you were viscerally assaulted almost by being able to feel what the violence was like because you were so close to it. And one of the things he mentioned in the extras was how, you know, with creating this style, that it was actually better to cut down on some of the gore and almost you, you're still leaving it to the imagination, right? The, you can't spend movies, it all at once, you know, you, yeah. you got to you have to you got to use it sparingly. Exactly. Exactly. And there are, there are moments in the film that really make me cringe, like when <laughs> yeah. uh, to this day, I'm no jellyfish, but. Like when uh, when Wallace uh, cuts the magistrate's throat, I just, every time I get I get cringy, I get goosebumps. It's so yep. visceral and yep. overwhelming. And and uh, for some people, the movie is really too much. It's too gory. It's too too violent. And, and there are, there are definitely a bunch of people that don't like the film because of that. You know, for that reason. But um, I think it's just enough. Just enough viscerality. Is that a word? Viscerality. <laughs> no, I think that's a great way to put it. Actually, I, I think you know again. They walked the line. You know, I know that I believe this movie had an NC-17 rating because of the violence and they brought it back. But in the end, I, you know, as I was watching some of the extras, Gibson said he actually felt like the movie was better when you didn't go for the ultimate gore every time. Mm-hmm. That it, 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 it actually helped you feel because you didn't become desensitized to when that ultraviolence happened. You know, like one and- of the most visceral things in the film is uh, when 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 Wallace is being disemboweled, and you know you know right. it's happening, right. but all you see is his face, and he it's it's a it's an amazing feat of acting to convey that much that much pain on on screen with just your face. And 
but it, you, you can kind of hear the sounds of it and you know it's happening and it's visceral even though nothing's being shown on screen. Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I, I think that's that's one of the, the, the important things about the way this film n- makes the decision on what to show you and what not to show you. And I think the thing that I, I, I noticed the most is that so much of what happens then in this epic scope is is the ways in which we still bring it down to the character stories. That with all of the battle scenes and the sequences and everything, those only mean something because of the time that we've been investing in the story of William Wallace and everyone around him as well. Well, he's a really tragic figure in a way. I mean, as he's portrayed in the film, who knows what he was like in real life. But, um, you know, he just wants to have Murrin and he wants to be on his farm and he wants to raise crops and have a family. And he's it's it's tragic. He's just drawn into this political chaos and uh, he can't escape it. That's the destiny of his life. And uh, that's the the purpose of it. But he he yearns for something simpler and better. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I... Notice to, you know, one of the big parts of this film, and I think there's a lot of important conversations I think that this this film has, uh, but I think one of the biggest is is the idea of being noble. What does it mean? What does noble mean? And of course, people are actually called nobles in this film. And, you know, Wallace says that, you know, uh, what does it mean to be noble? Your title gives you the claim to the throne of our country, but men don't follow titles. They follow courage. And he also says there's a difference between us. You think that the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide those people with freedom and go make sure they have it. And I love this conversation because, you know, I was really just struck by you know, creating this character who is obviously fighting for the freedom of his country, but putting it in terms to which, of course, we as Americans would understand, Western Mm -hmm. society would understand, and for the fact that this would come from a Scot when, you know, somebody like Hume is so important to the founding of the United States and his, his philosophical ideas on freedom. And so... Basically making this like, uh, you know, a proto-Hume was very interesting to me um, because this really does bring it down to the idea, you know, that what it means to be truly noble is not to live for oneself, but to live for others. And it's those nobles who are just, you know, selfish jerks who are using people and just trying to get what they want that are really on the wrong side of history. Well, I'm going to let you know on a little secret here, Matt. I'm actually a direct descendant of Edward Longshanks. Truth, oh, truth told. Uh, well, yeah, so this is going to be an ta- interesting the ta- podcast. The tax collector will be on its way, <laughs> FYI. So I'll, I'll expect some, uh, some, uh, some coin to come my way. <laughs> Um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about the about the the epic scope, and you know, the thought that popped in my mind was that it reminds me of the Roman Empire. It reminds me of the difference between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. You know, at a certain point, politicians you know get a taste for what it's like to have power, and they get more and more and more power. And there go the virtues of the Republic. It's like Cicero complaining about the, the decline of the of the Roman Republic. That that's what's going on here. Like we have you know nobles that are, have become power hungry, and they forgot their role as public servants. Well, and I mean, you know, that's a great point because uh, the Bruce says to Wallace that the nobles have much to risk. And Wallace asks, does the common man risk less? Just because the amount that they risk in in, in the sense of like material things doesn't mean that they're risking less. They're still risking their lives for their country, for their freedom and – and I think that's the thing that I, I was really struck by here is that there's a this this movie really is about the fact that we are all common men. We are a common race, which means then that and what I mean by saying that is that there's really not a lot that separates us. There's more that makes us similar than there is that makes us different. Well, there's something fundamentally uh repulsive to the American mindset about royalism, right? You know, we don't like the idea of nobles. <laughs> we don't like royalty. We don't like anything like that in America, right? 
So uh, I'm curious, you know, I don't really know. I've never talked to a, uh, uh, a Scot or a British person or or, uh, or any kind of royalist about, about their perceptions of Braveheart. But it strikes me that this film was made with American sensibilities in mind in that regard. No, I, I would 100% agree with you. Um, and uh, it, it I, I think... But I also think that there is a sense of it, it's not really just about, uh, you know, the difference between nobility and, um, you know, or a royalist type of, of philosophy. But it really comes to the idea of freedom, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, you know, I, I think, again, the thing that really strikes me is is the question that Wallace asks of what does it mean to be noble? Mm-hmm. I think that his answer of what makes one noble is basically the golden rule. Are you willing to do for others what you would want them have done for you? Um, are you willing to lay down your life for another, or are you going to take advantage of another uh, and use them as a stepping stone? And that true nobility is not one who puffs up oneself, but who makes m- more of others than oneself. Who uses yeah. their position for the betterment of all, not just oneself. And so I, I think what's interesting about that to me is that I think if you were to ask just anyone on the street what they think it means to be noble, my guess is is that you know today that would be more of the answer as somebody who is less selfish and more mm-hmm. selfless. And you know this is a, a, a point in history where you know uh, – selfishness is rewarded here with the nobility right because well, there's of the no such thing as a selfish hero right exactly almost the definition of hero you have to be self-sacrificing in some way but i i yeah no i i think that that's a that's a really good point um and and i think you know where this movie kind of ties into you know the the larger aspects of like you know where our best stories kind of bring us it is that idea that we gravitate towards the hero who is willing to be self-sacrificial i mean you know i don't think that it is any mistake that this film basically has wallace at the end lying on what looks like a cross oh absolutely which is not lost on me i remember in 1995 i was i was a senior in high school when this movie came out and, you know, I was taking high school English and we talked about metaphors ad nauseum. And, you know, I, I remember that scene like, you know, Wallace sprawled out like Christ on the, on the cross. Well, that's a unsubtle metaphor there. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very, very on the nose, which is what you'd expect from Mel Gibson, of course. So. Well, and I think, you know, it's, it's also, I think, you know, it ties into this idea in, and I obviously Gibson is, answering that question of what it means to be noble nobility again is is selflessness to the point of being willing to sacrifice oneself for others and the greater good um instead of being somebody who's willing to uh, do whatever it takes to stay on top it reminds me of this basic uh, Kantian ethical principle of not using other people as a means uh, to your own ends, but treating people as a me- as an end end in themselves. And you know that's what we expect about nobility. We don't want the upper class using the lower class as a means to make themselves richer. No, I love that you bring that up because I mean I think that point really uh, accentuates the idea of you know if nothing has any meaning and and. We're all just, you know, lost on a cosmic rock flinging through space and, and all of that. Well, then it's very easy then to rationalize treating anyone the way you want to as long as you're getting ahead, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if somebody is an end to themselves because there is a value in them and there's a value in everything that's happening beyond just what's happening now – because there's repercussions. I mean, you know, that's the type of question you're getting to ask. And and, and that's where I think, you know, you see um, uh, this type of movie asking these type of questions where that has been lost in the sense that there are people, there are men, 
in this film that are seeing themselves as better than other men because of what they've been able to accumulate and the titles they've been able to basically give themselves. But that doesn't really make them different. And again, Wallace asks, does the common man risk less? Basically, he's asking, is the common man worth less just because they don't have a title? Well, there's a fundamental tension because Wallace basically tells, uh, I think he tells, um, tells the nobles, you know, your position exists to, um, you know, to, to maximize freedom for, for other people, right? But there's a tension there. How, how can you live in a society where you're not a noble yourself, but have maximum freedom? And of course, that's the, that's the paradox that we, we in America see with, 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 uh, you know, the, the British and, and Scottish approach to politics, right? We want, we want to maximize liberty. And to do that, we had to abolish a monarchy altogether and, and, uh, abolish nobility altogether. But there is this interesting tension. Like, you know, how do you, how do you be, be a noble and simultaneously, um, have a higher position societally in some, uh, divine right kind of sense? Because if we're talking about nobility, which is a, uh, a birthright kind of concept but also try to maximize uh, freedom for, for everyone else, everyone beneath you. But that sounds paradoxical to our American mindset. Well, and, that, and that's, I mean, obviously comes the idea of uh, freedom itself and like the idea of like negative freedom, basically being freedom at all costs, that it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what it costs anybody else for my freedom. And, you know, which is, I think, more and more the place that our society is going Um and it's almost the difference between uh, freedom and license or licentiousness, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. Which, you know, one of the things about the film that I think is really interesting is a is this idea of compromise. You know, Wallace, uh, uh, it's said of Wallace by Robert Bruce's father that uncompromising men are easy to admire. He has courage, but so does a dog. But it is exactly the ability to compromise that makes a man noble. Which I think the question then becomes in the film, is that the case? Is compromise actually what makes us noble or is Wallace on to something in the sense that there have to be principles that cannot be compromised? Because if everything then could be compromised, then, you know, um, then nothing really in the end is worth fighting for because, hey, just it's not – is there a non-negotiable and why is it a non-negotiable really becomes the question. You're speaking to one of the fundamental tensions in ethics in general. If you take any given action, are there some actions that are just intrinsically right or intrinsically wrong or are some actions uh, – do you evaluate them based on their on their consequences? You know, Is there some wiggle room based on the situation or circumstances uh, surrounding the action? Um, you know, are there some actions where compromise is, uh, is okay or, or, or are there some actions that are, uh, that call for this, you know, strict hardline, uh, um, uh, you know, no, no compromise kind of approach. But as, as you're talking though, it reminds me that, you know, what do we expect from politicians? I, I don't, th- I don't think, um, uh, Bruce's, uh, father is, is wrong in this case. You know, politics is the art of practical compromise, right? <laughs> you know, you get a bunch of people together, put them in the Senate or, you know, here in the United States, it'd be in the House of Representatives or in the Senate or in Parliament over in Britain. And, you know, they hash out the issues and, you know, there's practical compromises run rampant. And this is what Aristotle thought about politics, that it's the art of the practical, not, not, not the realm of the ideal. Well, and I think, I would I think that there's something interesting then because, you know, the movie itself goes to and I think this is probably something that's uh, quite an American idea, but um, one that is rooted long in in history. You know, Wallace, I think, does believe that there are some things that cannot be compromised. And then the Bruce actually comes around to his way of thinking because, you know, he says to his father, I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe as he does. And I'll never be on the wrong side again. This idea that there are things that we believe in that can't be compromised because they are principles to which if we compromise, we would be compromising our very selves. So I think the idea that politics itself is the art of compromise, but in politics, there still have to be principles on which we would not tread or else we've lost ourselves completely and i think that's the you know the difference is that honestly you know when the bruce's father says that um 
he's used his nobility for his own gain. Uh, he's used his nobility to stomp on those below him and make himself more wealthy. Um, and again, he's he's done all of these things in, I, I would say, a completely ennoble way. Um, and therefore, that's the real, like, that's the battle of this film. And I think it's a big question, and obviously that's the huge question for all of us. What is non-negotiable in what we believe, and why is that the case? I think what's interesting about for me about the Bruce's father is that he's not trying to get the crown for himself. He's, he's in some selfless sense, he's trying to get the crown for his son, like any father would. Right. Um, so the, there is this kind of loving father uh, aspect to him that you can't, I, I don't think you can eliminate it away, but in terms of, um, we know where, where the line is drawn for compromise for Wallace, it's obviously freedom, right? It's better to better to die free than live a slave. And, and uh, that that's the line for Wallace. Well, and it's not just for him to be able to do so, but it's for everyone to be able to do so, mm-hmm. to be able to, I mean, in, in all honesty, I, you know, the, I think freedom is the biggest theme of the film, you know, and the, the idea that Wallace portrays in the movie is that all men should be free. Uh, you know, all men are created equal and should have, you know, to 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 quote, uh, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, and to not serve those above them. Um, and I think, again, what's fascinating is to kind of see this movie as a, a portrayal of Scottish history, um, but also the fact that, you know, you have guys like Hume and Smith who become so important to the founding of America that will kind of bring the ideals that this movie is talking about to full fruition um, you know, it really does become the question, are all men created equal or are some men more important? And I mean, this film obviously presumes a, this film obviously I think presumes a very John Locke notion of, of freedom, right? This is, you mentioned life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is a quote from our Declaration of Independence. But, uh, you know, it, Locke wrote it as life, liberty, and property ownership, essentially, but but the idea that you know that 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 we're endowed with innate rights of some sort, and and clearly the the film invokes this notion that these are God given rights. These aren't these aren't man made rights. These are God given rights. I think it's interesting too because you know uh, we, we talk about you talked about the idea of being a descendant of Longshanks, but you know <laughs> literally it's true. <laughs> you know he's he's you know if you were to ask somebody who's english what they thought of him i think the opinion would be completely different than somebody who's scottish so it gives you the the idea of of being on a different side and be able to to look at things differently and so but when when we're we're talking about freedom you know i i think this is the thing that wallace believes is a non-negotiable that all men that all people should be free should be free to be able to do the things to which he wanted to be able to do which is to be able to raise a family to own a farm to earn a living to provide for his family provide for those around him which is a, a, a you know i think the it's basically the american dream and um and I can't help but reflect on 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 some of these fundamental issues in in uh, in political philosophy. Like you know, one one issue is whether rights are innate, and you know, I think the film just presumes this John Locke notion of rights. We have innate rights, and then this. I mean, Wallace basically says they're God given rights to something better, right? And um, but that's that's only one view of rights, and 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 what politics is all about. You know, on the John Locke view, the the purpose of government is to protect those innate rights, and that's that's the end of the story. Um, but the, the other side of the coin is that, no, 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 we don't have any rights at all. We're, life is, uh, is what, uh, uh, Thomas Hobbes called nasty, brutish and short, you know, we're, it's a war of everyone against everyone and it's total chaos and I don't have a right to anything. You might take my food and conquer my government and do all the things. And, uh, and it's only when we come together and agree on, on a political structure that we get these notions of rights. And there's no such thing as an innate right on that view. It's a, it's, you only get rights inside of a political, uh, body. But this this film, I think, just obviously presumes the former view that there are innate rights of some sort. But that's not obvious in the history of political thought. Well, and I would say it's not obvious because 
it's only obvious in Judeo-Christian values because mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian values begin with man being created in the image of God, and therefore those rights are inalienable rights because they're not given to us by us. They're given to us by God in virtue of who we are as his creation. Mm-hmm. And and when you move that aside and say that's not the case, then yes, everything becomes suspect. Like everything just becomes about what we are willing to give one another, which is, I would say, the most dangerous place in the world to be because then anyone can decide anything that they want. And it's really only those that are in power that are going to make the decision. You know, and so that's it's an interesting uh, question whether whether yeah. our whether our our view of um, I mean rights in general hinges on some sort of theological uh, you know God givenness in that way. Otherwise, what's the other alternative? There are no rights, and and it, and it's nihilism, right? Exactly. <laughs> Anything goes. War of everyone against everyone, which is what Thomas Hobbes was saying that that's what it is. It's war exactly. of everyone against well, and, everyone. And I mean, so. you know, Hobbes would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And Nietzsche would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's where they just come with. In, and of course, Darwin would agree with that. Survival of the fittest. And uh, but I and I think that's the fascinating thing, right? You know, I I think I referenced in one of our previous uh, podcasts the Tom Holland's book uh, Dominion um, and discussing you know the the role of Judeo Christian thought in, and how so much of what we believe is still built on that, even though we've kind of dismantled everything else with it, but we still hold to these truths that are self evident that all men are created equal, right? Uh, And so I I love that question, and I I love the tension then that gets asked um, if we remove that. And I think that's the tension of this film, is this film is is basically arguing through Wallace that, yes, all men are created equal. All people are created equal and therefore have these rights, and that, you know, we should be willing to die for them because— they're not something that anyone should be able to take away from us because they're not given by man or by, uh, you know, some noble or a king. They're given by something far beyond us that can never be changed, you know, that can never be uh, uh, affected. So therefore, our status is always sure. Earlier, we considered the question of whether the uh, historical accuracy of the film mattered. You could, I think you could plausibly say that it doesn't. You could say that, you know, even if, even if this film is 90% fiction and we only know the slightest bit of information about the actual William Wallace, this uh, narrative that's been created in the film or otherwise in the you know, historical mythos of, of William Wallace, it provi- has a kind of regulative function. It provides an ideal for the Scottish mindset <laughs> to strive toward whether or not it's historically accurate. You could say the same thing about rights, maybe. You know, do we know whether right we actually have innate rights and God exists and God gave us these innate rights? Is there any way to answer that question? Maybe not. But maybe the language provides this kind of regulative ideal function to strive for whether or not it's true. I would argue that... Once you remove the reality of the, you know, immortal being as the arbiter, uh, then you come closer to where we are today, which is that we are seeing more and more uh, throughout the 20th century and now in the 21st century that more and more people are are willing to discard that idea uh, for saying that that's not the case and so the the, the useful fiction component is not not adequate as a as a grounding exactly because uh, uh, you know concepts. fiction is fiction and therefore a foundation of sand you know whereas you know i mean as the parable goes you build your house upon the rock and it stands you know you build a build it upon the sand and it falls apart and so no i think it's a really great question though and and i think it's one um, that this film, again, like you said, the foundation of it is built upon the rock of that these are inalienable rights given to us by a creator that therefore they can't be taken away no matter who says that they should be, whether it's a king, a noble, or anyone else. And, you know, that, like you said, too, going back to these philosophers like John Locke and others, we are really – that's, you know, even what 
the foundation of what we know of is built upon. You know, whether or not Locke holds to um, the specificity of Christianity, right, or and or Judeo-Christian thought, what he's building upon is that, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not, which is, I think, a, a, a truly fascinating thing. And it's what makes, you know, these discussions so interesting and I think this film so rich because all three of these issues that we've just talked about, whether it's nobility or compromise or freedom, I mean, are the biggest questions of humanity in some ways, right? Um, and our lives together as humans. I'm so fascinated by what I, what I might call the mythological component. I mean, in even in the movie, uh, as someone who's narrating some scene says, his legend grows, right? It'll be bigger than before. You know, there's this legend that's being built about him. And, you know, I, I have a uh, an, an affinity for, uh, for epics. I like Homer's Odyssey and I like Dante's Divine Comedy. And I like these big epic stories. Those are the ones that speak to me in some narrative sense. Those are the ones that, that I feel inspired by. And, you know, we need those, right? You know, I'm mean, here in America. We've got our Christopher Columbus and we've got our George Washingtons and we've got our we've got our legendary figures too, our national uh, uh, mythological figures, which have some historical reality, but definitely have a bit of uh, Americana that we've, we've imbued them with. And uh, and then that's, you know, William Wallace obviously serves that function for the Scots. And um, that's a good thing, right? That gives us a sense of who we are that binds us together as a people in some sort of like tribal narrative sense that we need. Well, I think it, to the, the best of the people that we look up to remind us of the best of who we can be. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but at the same time, you know, uh, just having read, uh, Chernoff's biography of of you know washington and his also by his biography of grant uh, uh you know being reminded that you know also understanding the faults of our heroes as much as the good in our heroes is very important because it allows us to not just idolize um but to see okay where were they wrong and you know i i think that's the that's the interesting thing about i would say mythology is that it can only go so far uh, because it becomes so much more about hero worship than actually giving us the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is, you know, one of the things I, you know, if, if, if nobody's ever read, you know, the actual Bible, uh, King David, good, the bad, and the ugly of the mm -hmm. character, right? Uh, seeing the reality of this man and that he's, Call the man after God's own heart, but also commit some serious atrocities too, and things that we would consider even wrong today. You know, so I, I think that there's there's an importance for us to to not um, look at our characters and not be able to see their own faults. And I, I think that's one of the things like you as you were talking about the myth. I think that's one of the things that Gibson does really well with the character of William Wallace here is he doesn't allow us to see this man as only just a hero, but you know, he's got his own foibles, you know, um, the way that he basically starts this whole rebellion is by taking revenge, you know, taking uh, everything. Not an admirable trait. Yeah. <laughs> no, not right. There could have been a better way to do this. Um, and so I, I think as glowing of, of a picture we get in the film through kind of this mythological understanding of William Wallace, I think there is also seeing where you know the character has his faults and you know part of that too is is we talk about like the mythology of it we already mentioned you know the documentation on wallace's life is not extensive and so we know kind of the bare bones about things we don't know the nitty-gritty like we do some people in history and so Building this out, I think, is is really interesting, and and therefore, I I do think, in some ways, for what you're saying, this is not a fairy tale version, but this is more of a historical fiction version of a true life character, and we're you know accentuating the details, which again, as we talked about before, there's nothing wrong with that's that's part of filmmaking in general. You know, you and I have talked previously about 
what I would call a postmodern turn in in contemporary culture within the last fifty years or so. And you know, for most of 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 the last you know couple thousand years of history, it was kind of hard to separate mythology from from actual history, right? It was it was easy to intertwine the two, whether biblically as you're describing, or uh, whether it's you know a historical perspective on the fall of Troy or whatever it is, right? History and mythology were intertwined in some way. And as we start to uh, do a deeper dive into these actual historical characters and expose their character flaws and look at the the minutiae of their lives and kind of deconstruct the the mythological component of those characters, you could say there's there's a uh, I, I guess maybe it's a question is is some damage done to the the narrative mythological component of those of those historical figures insofar as you humanize them? Is that a good? Th- it's a good thing for history for sure because you want history to be accurate. But there's, is there kind of a deconstructive aspect of um, systematically um, deconstructing our, our, our necessary cultural myths? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you asked earlier, you know, whether or not we can have the, you know, the almost basically the fruitful lie, you know, the beneficial lie. Useful and fiction, yeah. Mm-hmm. The useful fiction. And uh, I I think that the useful fiction actually turns out to be more damaging than helpful because I think that the most important thing is for us to be able to see things as they really were. Again, just kind of reading the biography of Grant and getting a chance to see, I think, the dark side of not not necessarily Grant himself, although, you know, he, he was no saint, but seeing that period of history in the reality of what things were like, especially in the South after the Civil War. Uh, you know, I, I think having that exposed allows us to be able to see uh, the good, the bad, and specifically the very, very ugly, right? And I think that's one of the places where as as we look honestly at those things in history, we're not allowed then to create... Uh, heroes out of actual villains. And I think that's a really important thing. So this is one of my favorite films. And uh, I mean, it's precious film to me. This is, like I said, it's in my top five easily. Maybe it's in the top two or three. Um, and I realized recently, and I'm, I'm curious if you, if you have any thoughts on this whatsoever, but um, I, was, I was recently watching an interview with a participant in the January 6th insurrection here in, here in the United States. And the person said something that I thought, I thought was greatly disturbing. <laughs> they cited Braveheart. They said it was like Braveheart. We were storming the Capitol. And it's like, it's almost like Braveheart has become this symbol, um, of, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It, it just, it bothered me that, that, that a film that I hold so dear could be used for such a purpose as the January 6th insurrection. They cited it as their Braveheart moment, <laughs> you know? Is that a common way of thinking about Braveheart these days, or is that just a is that just a crazy guy with a with a his own take on on the film, or has that become a, a kind of uh, you know just a, a reverse <laughs> revisionist history of the importance of this film? I think that that is somebody misunderstanding and misusing something. Um, you know, I, I mean, look. This story is, com- I mean, it's just you, you're comparing apples and oranges, right? You know, I mean, there's, there's oh, obviously they don't understand the film, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, like, you know, to use it that way, you're talking about a character in this film who has no representation in the governing body of England that's oppressing them, right? Mm-hmm. This is not the way our system works. And and I think it's always just dangerous to be able to this really talk in this language of um, an us versus them in this type of way when we do have representation. You just need to keep your representation accountable. And, you know, that's a whole other subject. But I, I do think that that was... That's that's a misuse. And but, I, I, you know, that's one of the things about the. I think the the mythology aspect, as you were mentioning, when we only see something is uh, a mythological type of figure and we remiss the reality and the understanding of the humanity. Right. It allows us to be able to, I think, do those type of things. 
again, I, I just just as a quick reference, you know, at King David. The Bible does not shy away from any of the ugliness of his existence and his choices, right? So I'm not allowed to make him a mythological character if I actually read and understand what this man did. Hey, couldn't have he tried? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's the thing, you know, when we, when we, and the, I think maybe the best answer to their question of whether or not um, the chipping away at the quote, quote unquote mythology of our understanding of history is a bad thing. No, I think it's a good thing because I think the more we understand the, the better it is to either see that one, maybe there's nothing new under the sun, um, but two, it allows us to be able to, if we really want to learn from history, we need to understand it as fully as possible, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think, you know, this, this film gives us kind of more of the rose colored glasses version. Um, but in the end, too, this is a film. This is not a history book. And that's where the difference does come in, even though films, of course, have a massive influence on how we think about historical figures. It's almost more inspiring to realize that deeply flawed, flawed people can do immensely inspiring things in, in this world. And, you know, yes, it, it, the film does paint William Wallace with rose-colored glasses, but not really. He still slits the magistrate's throat, and he's pretty, you know, he has his flaws, and, and it's... Uh, He's not an ideal character in a, in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. so. But he's sympathetic, you know. I, I love that they inter intertwined it with a love story. I'm a romantic, and this yes. movie is part, I would, you know, it, this, like I said, this movie came out when I was in high school, so at the tail end of my formative years, but this definitely appealed to my romantic sensibilities at the time, and still does. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things, and, and I wanted to talk about this uh, because I think it's important. Uh, you know, I think the cast in this movie is phenomenal. Uh, and I, I do think that the premier cast member here of Mel Gibson playing William Wallace, I don't know if there is anybody better in Hollywood to be able to portray just with his face all of the emotions, all the emotions, you know, whether it's love, pain, betrayal, hurt, anger, frustration, I mean... He does it all, and, and he's given the opportunity in this film to go the complete gamut of emotions, and so many times it has nothing to do with words that he says. It's just about the expression on his face, and it's, I mean, I think the the pinnacle scene is that one where he he pulls off the mask of the Bruce and realizes that he's the one who betrayed him mm -hmm. and Gibson just kind of falling to the ground and looking completely bewildered and betrayed and hurt. The anguish that's on his face is so perfect. And I think that's one of the things like you were talking about this film being one of your top five. And honestly, I think that if it's anybody else, I don't know if this would be in your top five just because Gibson's portrayal is 100% perfect. Well, I think there's two components to it. I think on, on the one hand, uh, Mel Gibson is one of those rare gems of an actor who, who can portray, like you said, the full gamut of human emotion non-verbally. <laughs> all you have to do is look at his face and he can convey all that. But as a director, he had the ability to read between the lines of the script and figure out what those moments were. Uh, that's a great point. And I think you're 100% right. And I think, too, one of the things that helps him, and, and I was watching behind the scenes, and everybody that was on the film talked about him as the director and, you know, that he is a actor's director. He would allow them to have as many takes as they wanted to get what they thought was the right one. Mm -hmm. Whereas Gibson would take like two, three takes and he was done. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there were, there were other people on the, the set having to be like, Mel, you, you can do another one if you want. You don't, it's, it's okay. But that, that he was sure of himself in his understanding of, of what he needed for the scenes for himself, but allowing the, the actors that time. And, and I think that's really important actually, because you know, Catherine McCormick as Murrin does not get a ton of screen time, but her mm -hmm. presence, because of the way she's portrayed, permeates the rest of the film, which is, I mean, 
it's genius and casting, but it's also an incredibly good, uh, brilliant performance. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, uh, it's a bit of a stretch maybe, but it reminds me of what Ricardo Montalban had to say about Star Trek II. He's not not actually on screen very much, but he's always present (laughs) in the movie, even when he's not on screen very much. And I think her character is exactly like that. She doesn't get much screen time really, but she she permeates the entire film in Wallace's mind and sensibilities and and desires and, and what he wants out of life. I think that's an incredible pull. It is a great one for one, right? You know, absolutely. I I think Khan has about the same amount of screen time, if not a little bit more. But the fact that he's always in the background is incredible. And of course, you know, Gibson finds ways to work her in even after she's died a little bit. But the fact that she is the one who has kind of helped drive this by her being taken away from him is, I think, such an incredibly important part of the film. And again, I think it just comes down to her performance, but it also comes down to the chemistry between her and Gibson when they are on screen. You know, I actually wrote a a blog post about this very topic. I I think I titled it something like, When Dreams Are Better Than Reality. And there's a dream sequence when Marin uh, appears to Wallace and and he, and he basically says, I says, says to her, I don't want to wake up. I want to stay here with you. Right. And there's, that's the thing that's so tragic about his character is like, no, no matter how good reality gets, even if he were victorious in this, uh, in this, uh, political quest he's put himself upon, life is still not going to be the way he wants it to be. He just wants to be there with Murrin. And, and she's, she's, she is his ideal in some sense. Unachievable, unachievable because she's dead. Right? Yes. Yes. No, 100%. You know, and I think on the other side, when you have, Argus McFadden playing Robert the Bruce, it's it's another great casting choice because there's a lot of strength in that character. But I think I love the way in which he plays his own indecision as he's wrestling with, you know, all of the thematic elements that we've been talking about. I think he does a great job of portraying in not so many words, the thought processes that he is going through that will lead him to the end, right? To to actually be the one who is narrating the story, sure. right? And I, I think he does just a phenomenal job in that. Because again, too, he's not on screen all that much. You know, his character is the only character that really has a, an existential burden of choice, right? And Wallace's character is, his fate is laid out for him. His character traits lead him to the path that he's he's led on there's no actual choice for him to make that's just the direction his character leads him to but bruce has a robert the bruce has a choice right (laughs) which direction to go and and i think i think we we almost relate to him a bit more because that's the burden we all face what direction do we go in life and we're the ones who face these hard issues we're we're more like robert the bruce than like wallace i would say the, the the lion's share of us well, and I think, you know, the the places in which we connect more with the Bruce is that we're raised, most of us, more like the Bruce. You know, we're we're not a child of tragedy. You know, Wallace Not in this day and age. You know, we, live, exactly. we live in a pretty cushy He's, day and age. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, uh, Wallace himself has the ability to, um, I think, act more quickly and being willing to find what it is that he truly believes in that's a non-negotiable because he's been forced to do that from a very early age. Whereas, like you said, that's the, the, the Bruce has a very cushy life, you know, and comparatively. And so yeah, he could take I, his lands and titles from Longshanks and live a comfortable life. He doesn't have to yes, take up the sword. Yes. Which, you know, Patrick McGowan is uh, Edward the Longshanks, man. Talk about an incredible villain performance. And he just sinks his teeth into every moment that he is allowed to be on screen and just comes off, of course, as completely despicable for the film. But he's brilliant at it. Like, he's just like, because you hate him. And then at the same time, you're loving him on screen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you understand him, too. I mean, you know, uh. He's king. It's his job to, you know, conquer other lands and it's his job to, <laughs> to quell the rebellions. <laughs> he's not being a bad king in that sense, right? He's he's not looking out for his people, but he's doing a lot of kingly things. 
Well, and and I just think he does it so well. And um, I think he's the ultimate example in the film of the one who lives selfishly, who sees everybody else as as though they're his stepping stone. You know, he including does not his own see, son, absolutely, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. As opposed to Bruce, Robert the Bruce's father. This is true. Uh, there is an interesting juxtaposition between those two characters in the sense that the Bruce's father is seeing this as a way to ensure his legacy, but also ensure his son's legacy, their whole family's legacy. It's not just about him. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I think that's that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that before today, but it uh, it you know there's a tendency to probably lump them together because they're they're both you know, royalty and nobility and they're both fathers and whatnot, but they are, they're actually quite different characters. Uh, no, I think it's an mm-hmm. excellent point. And, and I think that it allows us to be able to kind of see the nuance of some of the things that we were talking about earlier. You know, again, the, the Bruce's father is not wholly evil. And yet we could still maybe say that the, the choices of, you know, first principles are maybe a little askew, right? Um, and and that still is important. You know, there's a, um, you know, we're not talking about this much in, on the 602 Club, but, you know, we just finished recently watching watching uh, season three of Star Trek Picard, and there's, a, there's a, a line that Riker gives in Star Trek Picard when he says, you know, you look at your newborn son, you'd burn the world to save them. <laughs> and there's, some, there's something noble about that, but that's, that's what Robert the Bruce's father is doing, burn the world to, you know, help his son out. Yeah, it's a great, it's, no, it's an excellent poll. Um, you know, I, I think, too, uh, Sophie Marceau, who plays uh, Isabella, the princess, uh, also does a, a phenomenal job here in this film, uh, especially, I know this is one of uh, her first big um, uh, American productions that mm-hmm. she's in, uh, but I think she she's so wonderful in a position to which she makes the most of every opportunity to do the right thing, even though it could cost her, right? She's playing a very dangerous game. And Absolutely. at any moment she could mm-hmm. be caught. And I think she does it so well. And, and, and the vindication at the end where she, you know, tells him that, you know, your line will end quickly. Uh, <laughs> he coughs is up a lung, phenomenal. right? Been in there like I was last night. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I sounded like Edward Longchamps last night. I really did cough and get lung late at night. Uh, you know, I think Murn is a tough act to follow uh, in Wallace's mind. And you know, here comes uh, comes uh, uh, what's what's her name? Isabella of France, right? And uh, she's there's something of Murn's spirit in 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 her that Wallace recognizes. But um, I find I don't know. I find that interesting that you know when 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 Wallace's mind is so set on on Murin that that somehow Isabella comes along and speaks to him in in the way that's reminiscent of, of Murin. I think that the thing that really attracts him to her is the fact that she is willing to do the same thing that he is doing on the opposite side, and part of that is I think that she's also the way that the Bruce is attracted to. The strength in Wallace, the the principles in Wallace, she's attracted to that as well. And I, I think the movie is showing us that one principled man can make a difference if it inspires other to f- others to follow his lead, which is, of course, the entire story, right? Because the Bruce follows Wallace and, you know, he spends, I think, what, the next 13 years working on making sure that Scotland is actually free. Uh, And it's a hard-fought battle. He loses his castles. I've read a really interesting biography of him, and it's it's a fascinating story. But he takes those principles and runs with them, and he he is willing to give his life for them. And so, no, I, I think she portrays somebody that, is able to see that strength in him and then actually returns that strength right to him. And uh, like she sees it and she reflects it back. She's able to, to, to do the same thing. And um, especially since it's at great personal cost to her at, again, at any moment she could be found out and she would be executed. 
And as a woman in that time period, she's subordinate for a number of reasons, right? Exactly. But she still yep. manages to take that subordinate position and use it for, for a noble purpose. Yes. No, it's a great point. So um, one of the things I think that we have to talk about in this film is the music. And this is a score by James Horner, who uh, Star Trek two and three fame uh, did, you know, aliens. And I mean, he's an incredible incredible composer but this hauntingly beautiful score may be one of his absolute bests and i don't think the movie would be the same without this score you know there, there aren't too many soundtracks at that time period that i bought on cd if you remember buying soundtracks on cd but this is one i rushed right out and bought the soundtrack on cd <laughs> yeah my first soundtrack was uh jurassic park so like th- really? that was this my was very my first, first cd it's probably the first soundtrack yeah um you know it's and it's funny because for me it really did spawn this whole scottish i don't know uh scottish renaissance <laughs> music wise i remember I, i'm in california here and i went to like the scottish games in pleasanton california and what you know bought scottish music and watched the pipe bands and <laughs> watched them do the caber toss i was such in the scottish mode for about a year after after this movie came out and i i would i was actively buying bagpipe music as a result and you know that's not directly a result of, of james horner's score per se but the the movie was very very uh it had its own sound. It would. Uh, it, it. It was a a total unity between the the film and the score. I think in this movie in a way that you rarely get. No, I I completely agree, uh, and I think one of the beautiful things about the score is that it works exquisitely inside the film. But I think it's also one of those that I enjoy listening to outside the film. And you know, to me, those are the types of scores that live on forever because. It's one I want to go back and listen to. I listen to this one frequently. Uh, and part of that is the hauntingly beautiful nature of the love themes, the beautiful uh, pep of the bagpipe music, you know, as we're telling the tales, as well as the, you know, I think the visceral nature of the battle sequences. I was watching a movie. I, I'm trying to remember exactly which movie. I think it's Field of Dreams. I'm not 100% sure on this. But there's a scene when uh, um, in that film when the main character is walking through the cornfield and you get this kind of fluttering sound. And I listened to it and I went, that sounds exactly like the thing from Braveheart. There's a kind of fluttering uh, motif that, that you get uh, at some point in, in the score. And I looked it up, and sure enough, James Horner reuses a lot of his music. <laughs> and I didn't realize that yes, there's, this does. is one of the controversies with with James Horner that he tends to reuse his music, and um, he's received a bit of flack for for that as, as a composer. Uh, I think for bad reasons. Why not? Why not dive into your own well? I don't. I don't understand what the controversy really is, but I do remember vividly watching. I think it was Field of Dreams. I said that sounds like Braveheart. <laughs> Sure enough, it was, you know, I, I, and I, I guess Braveheart, mm, let's see, Field of Dreams must have come first before Braveheart, right? I think so. I'd have to look it up. I'm not as familiar with, I've seen Field of Dreams a couple of times, but I, it's not one that I, I, I know like the back of my hand. But no, he, you're absolutely right. He, you know, if you listen to Star Trek II, you will hear things from aliens uh and mm-hmm. that film and so uh, there are definitely phrases that he has but i mean you know williams is the same way there after so many you know i mean so many years of doing scores there are going to be bits and pieces Things that just work yeah, yeah right. exactly so well you know honestly this is a film that you could probably talk about for as long as the movie runs but with everything that we've talked about I don't think there's any question, but I do have to ask you, you know, what you would rate Braveheart. You know, Matt, I I have nothing to say bad about Braveheart. Like I said, it's one of my favorite films of all time. I've watched it more times than I've watched almost any other movie, I think. Um, There's a total unity of script and acting and music. And for me, it's epic in scope. Like for me, this was the first epic I ever watched. It started a new renaissance and epic filmmaking. Uh, We've, you know, delved into the depths of its meaning, uh, revolving around freedom. So I, this is one of those rare movies. I will give five out of five, uh, stars, but let's call it five out of five, uh, screams of freedom. (laughs) You know, I think, you know, you mentioned the idea that this is a film that kind of reignites the epics. And I, you know, we, I don't think we would have movies like gladiator and other films of, of that nature 
Troy. You know, you know, we wouldn't have anything like that. All of right. those films, mm-hmm. you know, owe the fact that this film did so well and became such a hit. I'm going to give this five out of five spears twice as long as a man because it's <laughs> – it is a perfect film. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that there's anything I would change about it. Uh, and I loved rewatching it. And goodness, I tell you what, the the 4K version of this film looks so gorgeous. And if you don't want to visit Scotland after watching this movie, you're probably dead inside. But Zach, if, if people wanted to catch up with you, you know, see what else you've got going on, where would they catch up with you? Yeah, there's two main places. You can find me on my blog, just ZacharyFruling.com, and you can always follow me on social media, especially on Twitter. My handle is just at ZacharyFruling. Easy to find. And you can find me all over social media with the name MattRushing02. The places I am most active, and I'd love to connect with you all over on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, or Vero. Uh, You can also find me, of course, outside the 602 Club with a bunch of shows, literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Strange New Worlds, which is going on right now, and the Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. You'll find me over on the Nerd Party Network as well with two shows. One's completed. It's called Owl Post. Every single chapter of the Harry Potter series is covered on that series. And then you'll also find me on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us and freedom freedom freedom